My mother has motion sickness. Now, that's not that uncommon. A lot of people have motion sickness, but she has a really severe case of motion sickness. She can ride in the car if she's in the front seat and if she can see where you're going and if you drive carefully. But if she's not, it's going to get unpleasant. Her motion sickness is so bad, she can't even go to the movies because of the action cameras now, shoulder-mounted, and all of the quick action and movement on the screen, and a lot of television bothers her. And so she can't really engage in a lot of pop culture kinds of things because if she does, she's going to get dizzy, and then she's going to get nauseous, and then bad things are going to happen. Now, my mom may have an unusual case, of motion sickness, but she doesn't have a rare condition. A lot of people have it, and unfortunately, as I get older, I'm kind of developing a little bit of that myself. If you really want to torture me, make me go to Six Flags. I loved it when I was 16. I would do almost anything to avoid it now, but there are some people that just love that kind of stuff. They are... They love to ride small airplanes. They love to go fast. They love to do stunts. They can't get enough of it, and other people just get sick at the thought. And here's the thing. If you don't get motion sickness, you cannot have sympathy for people who do. You just don't understand. It's like, what is wrong with you? Just get over it. Come on. Toughen up. But people don't choose to have this. It's just the way they are. It's just that their bodies are constructed a little differently. Now, here's the deal. I am a firm believer that the same thing happens in churches. That there are some people in church who are spiritual fighter pilots and they love change. They would love it if every single Sunday was completely different and every other year we had a new vision and we were just constantly innovating and changing and constant surprise and oh, isn't that awesome? And can't, what if we did this and what if we did that? And there are other people that if the church moves every little bit, they are gonna get terribly, terribly sick especially if they can't see where we're going. And the problem is these people are sitting next to each other in church. I would say in the pews, but that doesn't really apply here. Now, in the book of Acts, the church has to deal with this same thing because the church has always had this problem. The church has a terrible case of motion sickness when we get to Acts chapter 11. Now, it starts off well. Jesus gives the marching orders, gives directions in chapter 1, verse 8, and he kind of explains where they're going. He said, you are going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, the surrounding countryside of the Jews, and then Samaria, which are the kind of almost but not quite Jews, and then to the ends of the earth. And so they're like, okay, we've got some concentric circles. That's where we're going. We have a good idea. And then things take off at lightning speed. And on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes, 3,000 people baptized, instant megachurch. Boom. Can you imagine the administrative headache of going from a church of none to 3,000 in a day? That kind of growth, that kind of struggle, talk about disorientation. Most churches, if they add 200 members in a year, have got all kinds of administrative problems just trying to figure out how to deal with that. But imagine adding 3,000 in a day, no structure, no email, no communication chain, no real plan to delegate anything at all, and yet they manage that. That's a massive transition. And I mean, within weeks, they're up to 5,000 people. That is a complex 
organization, 5,000 people meeting in house churches, gathering in the temple in a variety of ways, gathering daily. Now they're distributing food. They're trying to take care of widows. They've got all kinds of things going on. And then some of them start getting arrested. Some of them start getting threatened that they're going to be put on trial. Some get beaten. And it really gets ugly when one of the new Grecian Jewish leaders that we sometimes call one of the early deacons, Stephen, gets stoned for preaching the gospel. And when he dies and is the first martyr since Jesus, the Jews realize we can't all hang out here in Jerusalem. And they start to scatter and they spread out and they take the message of Jesus where they go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. But everywhere they go, as they're telling the news about Jesus, they only tell it to Jewish people. They're only reaching out to fellow Jews. No matter what country they go to, we're only talking to Jews. And so we have this in common. Whoever's in our churches, they have this Jewish background. They've read the Torah. They know the Old Testament. They know the stories. They know our God, but now they understand that the Messiah has come, and so we have that common background, even though we're different culturally. But that's tough, and the church has already been having trouble with cultural tensions, but at least we're all still Jewish here. But then the church begins to get really disoriented when God starts pushing them even farther beyond their comfort zone. First, he sends the gospel to the Samaritans through Philip. Now we've got some people that are really beyond the pale. These are not Orthodox Jews. They're sort of quasi-Jewish, half-breed. We're not really sure what they are, but they're not us. And they become part of the church. And then you have a guy who is as far from being Jewish as he could possibly be and still kind of be in, and that's the Ethiopian eunuch. And he comes to faith, and he's going way down to the exotic land of Ethiopia where he serves Queen Candace, and he's really on the border, and this is stretching us, but at least he's a... He's somebody who has been a believer in the God of Israel and he's come to the temple to worship and he's been a, been a Jew to the, whatever degree he could be. And then God converts the worst enemy of the church in the apostle Saul and they're not sure what to do with him. And it's just one change after another, after another, after another. And it's been a wild ride and the church has handled it pretty well until God takes a hard left turn nobody saw coming and just makes everybody freak out. God forces the church out of their comfort zone to reach a new people that will eventually take over and dominate the church within a generation. God sends Peter to preach to a full-fledged Gentile named Cornelius. He's not just a Roman. He's in the army. He represents the oppressor. This is a huge turn in the road. And a whole lot of people back home in Jerusalem get motion sickness and start throwing up. Now, do you know what happens if you have a bus full of small children and one of them throws up? You just get domino effect, a vomit chain. Okay? Guess what's happening in Jerusalem? We love the story of Cornelius in chapter 10. It's a great story, great celebration. The gospel's gone to Cornelius and his whole family. The gospel's broken a barrier. It's into the Gentile world. Now it's going to run through the Gentile world. This was not a popular story back in Jerusalem. 
And when the church in Jerusalem finds out what Peter has done, they are furious and the news gets home before he does and he comes home to controversy. And some of the apostles and some of the brothers are supportive, but they've got such a conflict they have to call a general meeting. And you've got a group in this church called the, calling the, the, themselves or being called the circumcision group and they are opposing Gentiles coming into full fellowship in the kingdom of God. Their attitude is, if they want to join God's people, they have to become Jews. They have to observe our traditions. They have to cross the cultural gap and become like us. We are not going to become like them. Accepting Jesus as Messiah was enough change But God's people have been Jews since Abraham was circumcised. They've always been Jews. They'll always be Jews. The Old Testament is God's word. That's not going to change. And if those people want to come to Jesus, they've got to cross the divide and become Jews. We have suffered enough as God's people to maintain his word and to be a distinct people and to keep ourselves holy. And we are not lowering our standards and just becoming run-of-the-mill Gentiles out there. We're not watering down this faith to just fit whatever culture there is out there. And Peter comes home, not to celebrations, not to all kinds of exultation about how the gospel has now reached this new family and there's a brand new church up in Antioch. No, he comes home to red faces, raised voices, fingers in his face, punching him on the chest with a whole lot of how dare you. Not, thank God we now have new brothers but what have you done? And notice that the criticism isn't that he baptized Cornelius. It's that he ate with him. It'd be one thing if you baptized those people and just let them have their own church, but you sat down and ate with them and showed full acceptance when they are not Jews, they are not clean, Have you watched these people eat? Have you seen what they put in their mouths? Have you watched their nasty practices? Do you want that happening in our houses? You want your children doing that? You want that in our families? You know, maybe what we should do is just let them have their own churches. They're happier with their kind anyway. We don't want to bring them in here with us. And we can give them our leftover pews and Bibles and songbooks. How's that? But here's the deal. Being baptized is being given an invitation to sit at the Lord's table, and the Lord only has one table. Now, the, crit- the critics are concerned that they're going to lose the only thing that makes them special. What did the Jewish people have? that they could hang their hat on and be proud of. They weren't populous. There weren't a lot of them. They were not rich. They were not powerful. They were an oppressed, small minority people whose family or land was way out on the outskirts of the empire, a backwater, hardly recognized by the rest of the world. The only thing they had to be proud of is we are God's unique people in the world. And we're not letting that go. Years ago, my dad used to preach in a small West Texas town, and he would gather at the coffee shop with the merchants about 3 o'clock, and they would talk the town news and kind of keep up on everybody and what's going on and plan what was going to happen in the city, uh, despite whatever the city council thought. 
And Daddy would make it his business to be there and form relationships with this kind of kitchen cabinet for the city. And there was a man in there named Max. And Max had a beef against the Church of Christ. I don't know why, but he did. He was Methodist, and he just loved to give the Church of Christ guys a hard time. There was a guy named Gordon, and he was always after going after Gordon, who was an elder in the Church of Christ there. And one day he said, Gordon, said, you know, the Methodists have hospitals like this big old hospital out here in Lubbock. Baptists have universities like Baylor. What's the Church of Christ got? And Gordon said, God. Okay, trumped you on that. But it's easy to develop that mentality, isn't it? When you feel like you don't have anything else. And to hold to that, whatever makes you special, whatever makes you unique, and to be willing to go down with a ship, not to lose that. A lot of churches develop that mentality. And that's how these people feel. Well, Peter is very careful in defending himself. He gives them a careful account of his reasons for what he did. He tells the story in great detail. Have you noticed that chapter 10 and chapter 11 look an awful lot alike? We just read chapter 11. He goes back and tells the same story that was in chapter 10, almost word for word in places. Now, as hard as it was to write and as little time as they had and they could only fit so much on a scroll, why would you be so redundant? Luke wants us to understand Peter very carefully explained the whole story. And and Peter took six Jewish elders along with him, people who would potentially object to what God was doing, people who can give testimony and add credibility that Peter's not out here on his own. And most importantly, Peter shows how that at every step of the way, this was God's idea. I had a vision. I didn't like it. I actually said, no, Lord. Those aren't good words. I said, no, Lord. And he said, go anyway. And I had to go. And then this happened. And the spirit moved. And God did this. And what am I supposed to do? And all of the Jewish elders that went in with went, yeah, that's kind of the way it was. Peter doesn't say, hey, I'm an apostle. I was one of the 12. I walked with Jesus. I was given the keys of the kingdom. Deal with it. Get over it. Fall in line. No, he humbly lays out the case and says, this is God's doing. And what are we going to do, oppose God? If we don't accept the people God accepts, then we're rejecting God. And when Peter's finished laying out his story, all the opposition grows silent. Now, that doesn't mean the critics like it. It doesn't mean that everybody bought it. But what could they say in view of that testimony? And so there's this kind of surprise. Wow, God's going to let the Gentiles come in to the church and accept life in Jesus? But don't let the end of the chapter confuse you. The silence is not agreement. They're going to fight about this again and again and again. They're going to have to have a big church convention in chapter 15 and wrestle it out. And the people who disagree with this are going to chase Paul his whole life long. And they're still running around the world. In every church, and every fellowship, that same spirit is coming up over and over and over again. But once Peter opens the floodgates and gets that first olive out of the jar, then the dam bursts and all the olives come spilling out to mix metaphors. The gospel explodes among the Gentiles, not from Jerusalem, but from Antioch up north. The Christians who were scattered by the persecution, they've been working, they've been preaching the good news, they've been forming little churches all over the place, but they'd only been preaching to other Jews until Peter baptizes Cornelius' household. And now 
some people from that island nation, Cyprus, and Cyrene start preaching the gospel to other Gentiles in Antioch, and there's just this explosion of response. Third largest city in the world at that time, Antioch, over half a million people living in the city walls. It was the crossroads between the east and the west, and when the gospel took a foothold there, it would instantly spread to all the world because of all the traffic and commerce that went through Antioch. No more pivotal place in the world, and God blesses that move. There's a massive response, and now you've just got runaway movement, not a church plant, a movement. And the church in Jerusalem has been prepared by Cornelius, but they're still cautious and they're curious. And so the apostles send a representative out there to check out what's going on. Now, here's the deal. The apostles are not leading at this point. God has acted through people who are not the apostles. And the apostles are saying, well, the church is going. We better go find out what's happening. Because we're supposed to be leading this thing. And God isn't waiting on us. And they're running hard trying to catch up with God who's ahead of the church. Now the apostles play an important role and they kind of secure the foundation up there. And they send a guy named Barnabas who's from Cyprus like the original missionaries who planted these churches. And he's a great accepting kind of guy. Very encouraging. That's why he has the name Barnabas. He's shown that with the way he took in Saul. And Barnabas likes what he sees. He stays. He blesses the work. And Antioch, this Gentile church, not Jerusalem, Antioch becomes the center of gravity for the Gentile mission and the gospel runs through the world from the edges of the kingdom, not the center in Jerusalem. And this work is so successful that Barnabas is just overwhelmed. He needs help. He goes and he gets Saul of Tarsus and he comes back and they spend a year just building a very powerful church in a strategic city that's planting churches, that's planting churches, that's planting churches, that's going all over the world. And It's having such an impact that the local people start giving them a new name. They call them the Christ ones or Christians. And it wasn't a compliment. And Antioch does something phenomenal here that you just don't see in Christian missions almost at any point in 2,000 years of history. The Antioch church demonstrates the sincerity of their conversion by how they treat the Jerusalem church. Prophets come, they predict there's going to be a famine that's going to be around the world. These prophets are from Jerusalem. And when the Antioch Christians, these new Gentile mission Christians, hear that there's going to be a worldwide famine, they begin to collect money. But they don't do it to stockpile it for themselves. They send that money back to the church that sent them the gospel in Jerusalem and said, thank you for sending us the gospel. Thank you for sending us the bread of life. We want to make sure you have bread to put in your stomachs. How often have you heard of a mission church that sent money back to the church that sent them the gospel? Phenomenal respect that they show here. Now here's the point. We are really tempted here in the 21st century to think that we are living through unprecedented times of change and transition in churches. We like to talk about the shift from the modern to the postmodern era and how it's the biggest cultural shift in 500 years. And we see transitions happening in churches like nothing we've ever imagined in our life. I, I, in the last 20 years, I have witnessed things that if you had told me 20 years ago would be common in churches, I would never have believed you in our fellowship and beyond. It's just absolutely phenomenal, the rate of change in the church. And it's terribly disorienting. And we've been having all kinds of tension, not just between generations, but between different 
racial groups and cultural groups, and it's just been overwhelming at times. And there's almost sort of just a, a conflict fatigue setting in in the church, and do we even want to engage it anymore? Because the culture is changing so fast, and the church is changing so fast, and a lot of it has to do with just global forces and technology, and what once worked isn't working, and what are we going to do about it, and how do we reach all these people who are so different from us, and our own kids are growing up thinking different from us. It's a difficult time, but what I want you to see is that this is normal for Christians and has been from the beginning. This kind of rapid change, constant disorientation is how things started in the church. And we can't even begin to compare with the first century for the rate of change and disorientation. And we can learn a lot about managing needed change in the church by the way that the church manages its business here, particularly Peter. And I want to just share five things with you quickly that we can learn about managing needed change in the world. And by the way, I don't have the first clue what's coming here. Nobody in leadership has told me and nobody asked me to preach this. I don't know. I don't have any idea. But I do know this. Things are going to change. Because you're alive and everything in life is changing. So here are five things we can do. Number one, if we want to manage change well in a church to stay together, we've got to keep our eye on the mission. And the mission isn't to keep the church happy. And the mission isn't to keep the numbers up. The mission is to take the gospel to all people. Not all our people. All people. And if the whole church embraces the whole mission, you may go through disorientation, you may have conflict, and you may have all kinds of tension and challenges, but you won't have division. We need to hear this, those of us who have consumer American mindsets, Mission takes precedent over comfort, tradition, and status quo. We have been given a mission. This is not a cruise ship. We're in the Navy. And if you sell your services like a cruise ship, come here and we'll take care of you. Cradle the grave. It won't take long before people are unhappy because they're like, I signed up for a cruise ship and somebody handed me a mop and said, go wipe down the deck. Yeah, you're in the Navy. We have a mission. We have a commanding officer. We have something to do. This isn't about, am I having a good time? And that's to take the gospel to all people. And the Great Commission trumps everything, even if it requires that we make changes to reach people we cannot reach the way we're doing things now. Because we can never be content with who we have now. The church isn't just for people like us, it's for everyone, even if you live in a pretty homogeneous suburb. It's for everybody. The church is the only organization in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. We're not here to take care of us, we're here to serve the mission of God in the world. To be good news, to bring good news, and to transform lives. We exist for the people we don't have yet. And things that we do to bless one another are to prepare us to engage the mission of God as we go out. And the most important things that happen, happen between services, not in service. Because this is just halftime. This is not the ball game. When you leave here, you go out to play. We exist as church for the people we don't have yet. Keep your eye on the mission. Number two, Explain the reasons behind the changes that you make honestly and thoroughly and show how God is the one who's leading. 
Notice how Peter painstakingly worked through his reasoning step by step, told the whole story. Nothing alienates a church from its leadership like a how dare you question us attitude. Paul didn't, Peter didn't pull the I'm an apostle fall in line card. That kind of leadership isn't godly. And if you're trying to boil the frog in the kettle by turning up the heat just a little bit at a time and sneaking things past your members, you're the one who's foolish because churches are too smart for that. So lay your cards on the table. Show how God is leading. Don't sneak up on anybody. Let's be honest, brokers. I don't know anything about how things are here, but I'm telling you I've seen it all over the country. Members who no longer trust their leaders because the leaders won't really tell them what's going on. And they never know what's going to happen. Number three, include those who are slow to accept change in the decision process. Peter took six Jewish elders with him when he went to Cornelius' house. That was brilliant. And the experience they had as they saw God at work there overcame their objections because an entire library of arguments can be felled by one powerful experience. Include the people who are likely to be opponents in the decision-making process and let them see how God is working forth, except that not every church has to be identical. The Antioch church is racially mixed, and it was very contemporary. The Jewish church, I mean, the Jerusalem church was Jewish and traditional. It was like going to a synagogue. They were very different from each other. And no church can reach everyone. We need diverse churches to reach diverse populations. Every church should try to love everyone they can and draw on everyone they can. But the reality is different churches are going to have to take different approaches and reflect different cultures to reach all people. And that means that while we're trying to be as inclusive as we can and draw in people of diversity, the reality is a lot of folks are going to self-select out and say we cannot cross that cultural gap enough and you can't come our way enough and if we're going to get the gospel to those people we're going to have to plant churches in their neighborhoods that will reach them because they cannot really be fully assimilated where we are that's not an excuse not to love and reach out to all people it's just the reality but the challenge isn't to figure out how we get all those people in the church the challenge is to ask how do we get Christ in all those people it's not either or it's both and and fifth and finally We need to support and honor those who came before. Just like the Antioch church sent money back to the church in Jerusalem and said, thank you for sending us the gospel. We want to share material blessings with you to show you love and honor. We need to go out of our way to honor the people who came before and thank them and bless them and hold up their stories and make sure that we don't do anything that is disparaging and we don't speak ill of the ones who brought us here. Those five things, when done well, won't keep a church from tension and it won't keep a church from conflict, but it'll keep from a chain reaction, motion sickness, throwing up, vomiting chain. Okay. Now, just as in the first century, God is still taking the church on a journey to reach people for Christ. And he's the one that's driving this bus. And we're all struggling to keep up. And God works through the church and the church is his instrument. But unfortunately, God's biggest obstacle in the world is also the church because the church fights God all the time because we don't want to go where he's taking us. He's always one step ahead of us. He's always pushing us out there. And the story of Acts show how God is the one who brings the growth and God is the one who leads us on new journey. And every time God calls the church to move, 
we struggle and we get a little sick. Now, I'm going to make a quick observation here, and I don't know how well this applies here because I just don't know you. I'm from the outside, and I understand that. But if you're like most churches, there are three groups of people in this church, pretty easily identifiable. There are those of you who are here because of what this church used to be. I know you're only 30 years old, roughly 28, something like that. So you may not have a history that goes back that long, but a lot of your people do. And there are folks who are here because of what this church used to be, and you really don't feel that good about it anymore. But you're still here because you got relationships here. And you remember strengths of the past, and you're uncertain and fearful about the future, and you'd really like to go back to a way of doing church that served you better. And a vision that calls you to make a lot of changes, to reach others, that's giving you a hard time. Secondly, there are those who are here because of who you are now. This church is the perfect blend of what was and what's out there now to make you feel comfortable. You can't go there and you don't want to go back there, but here's a good kind of happy medium. And these folks tend to be pretty complacent and satisfied and they sometimes sit pretty light in their seats. I don't want to go back, but if we go over there, I don't know about that. And then you've got people in this church who are here because of where they think you're going. They don't really like it too much now, but they think you're going somewhere they do like. And so they're here because they're investing in a future, and they're probably pushing for that, and they tend to be impatient and frustrated with the rest of the church, but they really think this church can be something if we'll do this or if we'll do that. And these folks have a tendency to forget that the wagon train cannot travel at the pace of the scouts. And I think there's a word here in Acts 11 for each of these groups. For those of you who are eager for change, for those of you in that last group who are here because of what you think this church is going to become, be careful. Don't get impatient. Don't move too fast. Make sure that the changes serve God's mission and don't just help you overcome your boredom with the way church is. Make sure you're not just pushing a personal agenda to change things you never did really like. Is this really about reaching people? Or is it about serving you? And make sure you're supporting and honoring the people who brought the gospel to you. You know those people in the church you disagree with most? Those are the people you need to take the most effort to love and support spiritually and emotionally. Spend time with the people that drive you crazy and love them. And learn what's behind their stories and their heart. Secondly, to those who are happy with the present, don't get too comfortable and don't don't settle in your easy chair because this church, like every other church, is either going to die or it's going to get on a journey with God. And the target isn't where you are, it's where you're going. And you don't know where God's going to take you in the future. But one thing is for certain, there will be surprises along the way. And if this is your happy compromise church, it's going to be your, I'm frustrated with that church eventually. Third, to those who want to go back to the way it was, remember this is God's church and he's the one leading. Not all change is good change. Some change should be, uh, should be avoided. But some change is obeying God. And you really need to wrestle with that and open up to the possibility that maybe God is the one who's leading the change. Listen to the explanations of the leaders Allow yourself to experience the change before you start protesting. It may not be what you fear. 
One of my all-time favorite stories is about a church where they did business with a general business meeting. And the leaders would get up and kind of toss out ideas and let the members talk about it. And, and they, they had this one fellow in the church. He'd been a leader in the church for years, not an elder, but just an influential member in the church. And every time the preacher or one of the elders or someone else laid out a new initiative, it was inevitable at some point he was going to stand up and say, now, brethren, I've been a member of this church a long time. And I got a lot invested in this church, and I'm against it. And that would just kill it. After that, whatever was proposed was dead because this guy had money, this guy had relationships, and he was holding the church back from anything every single time, every new idea. Brethren, I've been a member of this church a long time. I got a lot invested in this church, and I'm against it. Brethren, I've been a member of this church a long time. I got a lot invested in this church, and I'm against it. Finally, one of the young deacons had had enough. When he pulled that line out one more time, he stood up and said, Brother, I want to know exactly how much you got invested in this church because I'm going to buy you out. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. It doesn't make any difference how much you've given. It doesn't make any difference how long you've been a member. Doesn't make any difference how much time you've put in. Doesn't make any difference what title you've held. Doesn't make any difference who all you've blessed. Doesn't make any difference who listens to you, how many relatives you have, or how influential you are. You own no stock in the kingdom of God.